Good morning. We are going to be reading Psalm 4 this morning. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. All right, how many of you would like to be happy and successful in life? Like given the polarities of tremendous prosperity and tremendous poverty, how many of you want to barely get by? None of you. None of you want to barely get by. You want prosperity. You want flourishing. You want what's often referred to as the good life. And something that's interesting that I noticed this summer as we've begun going through these first few psalms is that basically these first four psalms all assume this universal human longing for the good life. So in chapter one, you saw that like there's this longing for prosperity and success and everybody wants prosperity and success. In Psalm 2, we saw everyone wants freedom and autonomy, the independence to kind of do their own thing, to have their own freedoms, their own rights, as we just talked about. Psalm 3 talks about how we all want to be rescued from something. We all want the blessing, whatever the blessing is. And as Deanna read this Psalm 4 this morning, we come to the end of the chapter and we find we all have a human longing for relief from difficult things. We want joy. We want peace. We want safety. I mean, for those of you familiar with philosophy and argumentation, like this Maslow's hierarchy of basically like Abraham Maslow saying, you you have very basic biological needs. Like you need water, you need food, you need breath, you need sleep. But then immediately above that, he starts naming other things that we feel an innate longing and not just a longing like a desire, but we feel a need for And in a sense, I see the scripture agreeing with that in the first few Psalms. And it's meaningful to me that as we encounter scripture saying, you want to be prosperous, you want to be free, you want the blessing, you want joy and happiness and success in your life. But then the psalmist don't turn around and say, shame on you. Like God should be enough for you. Why does it have to be God plus happiness or God plus safety? What if you're just not safe, but you still have God? Isn't that enough. That's not what they say. They basically say, of course you want things like peace and prosperity and safety, but make sure that you're pursuing those things in the right way. Or even if you get them for a short period of time, you will end up worse off in the long run. You say, okay, well then what's the right way? Well, first, what's the wrong way? The psalmists are basically saying that the natural way to go after anything we want is to go directly after it. Okay, if we want wealth, we're like, what will make me wealthy? And we go directly after wealth. If we want, 
if we want freedom and autonomy, we're just like, I'm just going to pursue the things that I think give me the most freedom to do whatever I want to do. If you're like, I want honor, I want esteem, then we like come alongside certain people and we go directly after their affirmation, their validation in our lives. If we want happiness, we just go right after happiness. And this makes sense, this little formula we kind of plug in. I want X, so I'm just going to go for X. I want happiness, so I'm just going to pursue happiness. But it's interesting the Psalms say what you want in life is good. The way you're pursuing it is not good. It's not healthy. It's not even effective. The psalm says it doesn't work that way. The the psalms say the good life is the byproduct of pursuing something else. And that something else, namely, is God. These psalms say you want the good life. You want peace, shalom, contentment, fullness, joy, happiness, safety, love then pursue the face of God. And in pursuing the face of God, you will find the good life. So that's the theme this morning of this simple psalm. The good life is a byproduct of seeking God's face. You'll notice in the psalm as we read it a moment ago, there's a movement in this psalm, and it's a movement from a place of distress and shame to a place of openness, a place of of healing, of some kind of renewal and restoration, you'll also notice, I hope, that there's a mechanism of that change in the psalm, and the the mechanism is God's grace to needy people, okay? So here's how we're going to go through this this morning. There, There are four basic points I see. Again, starting with that crisis, point one, then we're going to see a confidence of both the righteous and the kind of unrighteous. Then there's a call that the psalmist is going to issue first to God and then to his peers. And then there's a conclusion. Where does this land? Okay. So number one, crisis. So notice verse one, the writer, the word he uses is, he's like, I'm in distress. And it's an interesting word that basically means in a narrow place. And we still have expressions like, like hemmed in or like pinched about something. And the idea is like, it, it's no longer this, this wide place, this open and freeing place. It's something is going on in my life that's constricting. And uh, I thought of this scene in like the original Star Wars where like Luke and Leia and Hans they're, they're, and Chewbacca, they're all in the giant trash compactor. Like, you know, this scene. So they're like wading through all this like space trash and all of a sudden the walls start closing in on them. And some of you have experiences like that. Maybe you have experiences like that right now where you feel like my life or some aspect of my life is closing in on me and in many different ways. So, so how am I reacting to that? Well, we always see that an external crisis brings about an internal crisis. And you can, you can see this when this is literally happening. Like there's, there's a very sudden anxiety that wasn't there a moment ago of like, I can see where this is headed about two minutes from now and it's not going to be good. And internally because of external circumstances we can go through a whole range of emotions from fear to doubt to frustration to shame i mean all kinds of things anxiety stress as our culture would say and what do we want when the walls are closing in we want relief you know if we're in a narrow place we want we want it to be broad if we're in a painful place we want comfort if we're in a broken place we want healing we're in a dangerous place. We just want safety. 
And again, the Bible's not like, well, you, you shouldn't want the broad, safe, happy place. It's like, sure, that's a great desire. How are you going to get that kind of relief? Are you going to get that kind of relief from God, or are you going to get that kind of relief from not God? In other words, point two, what are you putting your confidence in to get the relief that you want? And let me begin here with this false confidence, verse two, where David says, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? The Hebrew here could literally be translated, how long will you love emptiness? The word words actually isn't there. It's just, how long will you love emptiness and seek after falsehood? And he's kind of using shorthand for the emptiness and the falsehood of false gods, of things that are not real. And he's basically saying, look, idols are empty. They're vain. It is delusional to serve idols because they have no real power. Like they may have a real existence in the sense that you, you see this icon back in his day or you see a pile of money in our day or some other concept that you're pursuing as a God. But he's like, but, but at the end of the day, that thing actually can't deliver on his promise to rescue and renew you, to give you the kind of relief that you want. And I want us just to pause and think, okay, 3,000 years after David wrote this, what are some of our counterfeit gods? In other words, like, what do we instinctively turn to in a time of crisis when things are just caving in on you and you feel the pressure and you feel the pain? What, what resources do you instinctively turn to trusting those resources for relief? This is what's going to rescue me. This is what's going to get me out. This is what's going to make me happy. And I've listed just a few. I think these are fairly obvious, and some of you will relate to one, two, or three of these. A very common counterfeit god of our society is simply like money or prosperity. And we think if I had more money, if I had more resources, I would be able to get myself out of this jam. I could buy my way out, or I could afford something that could help me. Another idol of our culture is control. It's power. And you notice how, you know, Christians included, it's very often this culture war between, like, who gets to have power? Who gets to have control? Who can kind of manipulate and bully everyone else to have to do it their way? And a lot of times people are like, I could get out of this crisis if I were the one in control of the crisis and I could change the situation or manipulate certain people, then things would be fine. And then I think another common counterfeit God of our culture, you see it, saw it a bunch of times just this week, is separation. Like cutting people out of your life that disagree with you. You know, some of you may have seen this on social media as I did. It's like, okay, Roe v. Wade's overturned. Bye, everyone who disagrees with my position. You're all terrible, horrible, evil people, and I want you out of my life. But, but that tool of separation, of distance, of cutting off and cutting out of our lives is a very common idol of just like, how can I get relief? I don't want to be around people who think differently than me, that challenge me. If I cut them off, if I silence their voices, then I'll have things under control. And I want to point out, like the counterfeit gods of our culture today, they promise relief on some level, or we wouldn't probably choose them. Like money. I mean, how many of you agree, like, money is useful for solving a lot of problems? Money fixes stuff. Like, when your car breaks down and, uh, and your, your mic at the park and ride and someone steals all your tires while you're gone on a business trip, money fixes that problem of being able to put new tires back on your car and drive your car again, okay? 
but there are a lot of things that money can't fix. Like money can't fix a lot of health problems. Money can't fix a lot of relationship problems. You're going through something with a friend or a spouse or your kids. You can't buy your way back into a reconciled relationship. So money fixes some things. It doesn't fix other things. Money causes new problems. Point is, like, it's just, it's just a false confidence if you're like, that's what I'm looking to, to fix my stuff. But then he contrasts this false confidence of like, you're putting your, your hope, you're putting your trust in vain and empty things. He's like, but by contrast, there is a, there's a true confidence. So verse three, he says, in contrast, know that the Lord, that is Yahweh, has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. I want you to notice two things. Like, what is the true confidence of David? His first confidence is, number one, I know that God hears me when I pray. And number two, I know that he is determined to act on what he hears when the godly cry out to him. And by the word, the, the word godly is not like some self-righteous, like, oh, godly, and you feel like you're so holy. Um, it's a word that, that could mean like faithful and not faithful in the sense of like you, you're, you're knocking out of the park with your allegiance to God, but just a, a faithful person could be a person who is full of faith saying, I'm a person who trusts in God. It's a, godly is a way of saying someone who trusts in God. Okay. So he's saying, I have a confidence that God hears the cry of those who trust him and God is determined to act on their behalf. So you've got this contrast now between this empty and this false, this delusional hope. And then what does that say of this other hope? It's a, it's a true hope. There's a fullness of hope. There's a, there's a provenness to that hope. Like God has done this before. God will do this again. And I want you to think, what is it that makes something either a false hope or a true hope? Or like a false confidence or a true confidence? Is it the amount of faith that you put in that thing? Or is it like how sincerely you trust something to deliver you? That's what makes it a false or true thing. Now, we talked about the, like the story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal like a, a handful of weeks ago, where Elijah's basically like, people of God, like, let's just figure this out. You, we can't keep going limping back and forth between two opinions. And he's like, if Yahweh is God, then serve Yahweh. If Baal is God, then serve Baal. But let's not go back and forth pretending that simultaneously they can both be the God, okay? And he sets up this test. And if you remember in that test, the prophets of Baal, they're every bit as sincere as Elijah was, trusting in God. Um, they, they could even be seen as more sincere because they are sacrificial. They're, they're cutting themselves. They're screaming and dancing and, and cavorting around just like, please, God, we, we just trust so much in you. And then Elijah just prays. And God sends down the fire and consumes the sacrifice. And Israel's like, the Lord, he is God. So the thing that makes something a false confidence or a true confidence is the nature of that object itself. Uh, I just want us to think about, as I asked you earlier, what are some of the things that you put confidence in instinctively to give you relief from a tight circumstance, from a painful circumstance? Then take a moment to evaluate how much real authority and power does that thing have? Like if you are one of those people that's just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab control of this situation. And, and because I have control and this other group or this other person, 
doesn't have control. Everything will be fine. Like, really, how much power and authority do you have in a broken world to fix all that much stuff? How much power and authority does money have to, to fix the really important things in your life? So we go through and evaluate and say, how much authority does that have? How much power does that have? And to take you back to the Star Wars trash compactor illustration, you know, this, the walls start closing in. If you haven't seen it, they're just, they're giant. I mean, like as tall as this building, like just giant metal walls that are coming in. And, and the first thing like Luke and Leia and everybody do is they just put their back up against the wall and they're like, they're like this, you know, and it's, it's, it, but, and you, you, you laugh, you look at that and you're like, what, what is that going to do? But God would say to you, what is that going to do? Because oftentimes your thing and my thing is not even to trust something outside of ourselves like money. It's just like, I trust myself. Like, I've seen this before. I know what to do. Like, I've got the experience. I've got the wisdom. I've got the education. I've got the, uh, I've got the work ethic. I've got the charisma to make this thing happen. And, and God is trying to show you your Luke and Leia with your backs up against that big wall and your feet are just sliding forward because you don't have the power and authority to stop life when it's coming in on you. So as the scene goes on, they immediately realize like we're not strong enough to resist the closing of this wall. So somehow they find these giant metal poles like down in all the trash and somehow they just lift these giant metal poles. You're not supposed to think about this part, but then they, they lift these metal poles and as the walls come in, they're holding them up. Okay, now the walls are here and it's like, does it hold for a second? And then that pole just crumples in the middle, it bends and they're like, oh, that's not gonna fix it either. And that's like us switching from like, oh, I tried my strength, my charisma, my experience. That didn't work. Now let's grab another God and prop this thing up. And, and God in his kindness really is trying to show you like, I'm going to break that thing and show you it has no real power and authority to keep life from coming in on you. It has no real power and authority to give you the good life. I want to use a personal example just to show you how how like insidious and how sneaky this is. So it probably doesn't surprise anybody that like pastors get slandered from time to time, just like everyone gets slandered from time to time. Like you have hard conversations with people sometimes and sometimes they don't like that. They're upset about that. So they go represent you a certain way to other people and they say that you said things that you didn't say. And like oftentimes they're just like blatant lies that happen that are like they're very painful. They're very hurtful. They're very frustrating because you're like, well, people that know me know that I wouldn't actually, but yet people are believing. And I'd love to say that when I'm in like a new instance of, of slander, of false accusations, I just instinctively just put my confidence in the Lord. But I don't oftentimes. You know what I do put my confidence in is the truth. I mean, there's a saying that like the best defense against slander is the truth. And I guess in an objective legal sense, that's true. Like, how do you fight lies? Well, if you're always telling the truth in an objective sense, in a legal sense, you're in the good. But that's my tendency is to be like, well, I'll just, I'll document everything. I'll record everything. And then like by presenting the truth, people will be like, oh, I'm sorry, I jumped to a conclusion, like, please forgive me, let's make this all right again. And I've been in enough of these situations where I realized, like, well, that didn't even work. 
like even trusting the truth doesn't work because a lot of people don't want the truth. And a lot of people don't want other people to have the truth. And I think more importantly for this illustration is I've sensed the Spirit's conviction a handful of times where it's like God saying, like, do you trust me or do you trust the truth? Like, do you trust me or do you trust your own integrity? And I have to be like, yeah, I'm not even praying to you. I'm just rounding up facts right now. And I share that personal illustration because I think one of my fears in Christian circles is that it's, it's not like we race off to like horrible, immoral, ungodly, evil things. And we're like, I'll put my confidence in you horrible things. Because then other people in your community would just be like, what are you doing? That's a horrible thing. Like, and you're like, well, I know, but I trusted to give me the good life. What we do in Christian circles is we run to good things and we make them ultimate things. We run to good things. Like, is the truth a good thing? Yes. Is being known for telling the truth, is having integrity a good thing? Yeah, in fact, it honors God, but it's not an ultimate thing. And I want to just point out that, like, in the context of this psalm, in the context of what was happening even in David's day, a number of his peers were not rushing straight to, like, I want to worship Baal or Ashtaroth or any of these other gods, but, but they were running to like righteous actions and being like, God, deliver me because I'm a really good person and you kind of owe it to me now. And if you receive what I'm saying, like how do you respond then? This is point three. There's a call. There's a call first on God, then there's a call to his peers. Notice this call on God, verse one. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Then verse 6, I love this. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And it's really important to, to, to read his words and understand he is not saying, give me what I deserve, God. He's actually saying the opposite. He's saying, give me grace. Give me what I did not earn, what I do not deserve, what I cannot repay. See, when David calls on the Lord, he's not like, I'm confident that you are going to answer my prayer and bring me out into a broad place because I am a good person. He says, I'm confident you will lead me out to a broad place because you're a good and gracious God. And how often do our prayers need that? It may feel like a subtle nuance of difference of like, you owe it to me versus you owe me nothing, but I'm crying out to you. I'm calling on you for your grace. And you see that in verse 1. You see it explicitly when he says, be gracious to me. Like, I need unearned kindness, God. Be gracious. You also see it implicitly when he says, God of my righteousness. So when he's like, I'm calling on you, God of my righteousness. Now think about this for a moment. If you were to say, I'm calling on you, God of my salvation, What's the relationship between God and salvation? What's the relationship between God and righteousness? You're not, you're not saying, like, this salvation is mine. God, my salvation, God. You know, you're saying, God of my salvation means, God, you are the source of my salvation. And in the same way, he's saying, God, you are the source of my righteousness. And, and let me just explain that, how he's looking to God, how he's calling on God, not give me what I deserve because I'm righteous, but give me what I don't deserve because you're good. Um, you know, the Bible's very clear. We've all missed the mark. We've all fallen short of what God requires of us. If you just simply take the, the greatest commandment, 
and the one that Jesus said was like it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Like, we don't do that really well from day to day. Just saying, God, you are my everything, and I will love and show compassion and seek the good of my neighbor as much as I love and show compassion toward myself and seek my own good. We just don't do that that well. So we've fallen short. The Bible would say we're unrighteous which is a word that we don't use often, but it's just simply like righteous would be like, here's the standard. My life matches up to the standard. Unrighteous is like, here's the standard. My life is a little crooked or a lot crooked when held up to that standard. That's what unrighteousness means. But all the way back in Genesis 15, we're introduced to this like really, really important Christian concept that is important for understanding this psalm. So in Genesis 15, 6, The Bible says that that God goes to a pagan and sinful man named Abram and just says, follow me. Like, I'm taking you to a new land. I'm going to make you the father of these people known as the Hebrews, the Israelites, later the Jews. But you've got to leave your household. You've got to leave your gods. You've got to trust me to bless you. And Abram is like, okay. For whatever reason, he's like, okay. And he gets up and he follows God. And we read this in Genesis 15. It says, Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, the Lord saw Abram's faith in a righteous God and said, I credit you with my own righteousness. You are not righteous, but because you trust in a God who is, you get the free gift of you measured up to my standard. And we know as Jesus followers, the reason that that's true is not way back in the Old Testament. It's because Jesus came, the eternal Son of God, and he paid our penalty for being unrighteous, but he lived that righteous life that we were called to live that we fall short of. And he says, hey, if you trust in me, if you believe in what I did for you, I'll take your bad record and I'll credit you with my good record. And then we can all pray like this. We can say, God of my righteousness which is God of this free gift of righteousness that I don't deserve. How can I cry out to you when there should be a wall between heaven and earth or a ceiling because my sin is offensive to you? It's because God doesn't view you as sinful and offensive through Jesus. He views you as accepted and beloved and forgiven and clean and holy. And God makes a distinction, he says here. Okay, so that's the call on God. It's a, I want your grace. I need your grace. But then there's a call here to his peers. So as he's processing this himself, I'm in a distressed place. Some of you are even trying to shame me and disgrace me and dishonor me even as I'm in this place. But then he looks at his peers as he's processing, but God is gracious. God is good. I trust God. Some of you don't. Look, look at how he calls out to his peers now, verses 4 and 5. It says Some of your translations will say, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. And I want you to notice six imperatives here. So these are, he's like, I'm commanding you. I'm urging you. I'm exhorting you. And let's just get the very first one out of the way where it says, be angry and do not sin. Um, the New Testament says that. I think that's a poor translation here. The word, the word is not be angry. Um, the word is it's a word that almost always in the Old Testament and in ancient Hebrew literature refers to an agitation of some kind. And you could be agitated in anger, but almost always the word is actually translated tremble. Like you're trembling in fear. You ever been so agitated by a fear, like life is closing in on you, and you realize 
My back against the wall didn't work. These rods against the walls, that didn't work. You may start trembling in fear of like life is closing in and my resources are failing me and I'm failing me and, uh, I, and I've offended God. And, and that's what he's saying in the context. It's like tremble and stop sinning. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. It's like th- think about what I'm saying. And then focus on this phrase for a moment where he says, offer right sacrifices. So what's the implication of him saying offer right sacrifices? The implication is they're offering wrong sacrifices. Okay? He's not like you need to start making sacrifices. He's like offer right sacrifices. So as you serve the false gods of Baal and these others, as you build these high places... It's not that you're not making sacrifices and even costly sacrifices. It's that you're making them to the wrong God who can do nothing for you. So all your sacrifice is kind of in vain. Well, I want to bring this into our church, into our lives, and give you kind of like a two-part diagnostic, okay? Here's what I want you to do with this point. What sacrifices do you make and in service of what? There are not people who make sacrifices in the service of God and then everyone else who doesn't make sacrifices in the service of something. We all make sacrifices in the service of something. And again, that diagnostic is what sacrifices do you make and in the service of what? See, we're just applying what he says when he says make right sacrifices. So a wrong sacrifice would be like, are you willing to sacrifice the truth just fudge a little bit, be dishonest a little bit, or not in a situation where you should be telling the whole truth because you're disadvantaging other people when you don't tell the whole truth sometimes. But you're like, eh, I'll sacrifice that. I'll sacrifice my integrity to get this thing. I'll sacrifice my marriage. I'll sacrifice my unborn child. I'll sacrifice my association with Jesus. That's not really important right now that people know that I go to church and I'm a Jesus follower and I'm a Christian and like whatever. I'll sacrifice that association. And the second part of that question is in service of what? Why are we willing sometimes to sacrifice our integrity, the truth, sacrifice a close relationship like a marriage or a deep friendship? Well, maybe it's in service of your career. And you're like, I'm willing to sacrifice the truth because the real God right now is my career and I'm on a good path and this thing doesn't look good. It doesn't fit the pattern that I need people to see. So I'm willing to sacrifice the truth or sacrifice my integrity for the sake of my career. Well, then your career is your real God. It's your real trust. Or maybe you're sacrificing something for your autonomy. And you're like, I know I'm giving up this. I know it's a risk. I know it's costly. But I want to do with my body, with my life, what I want to do with my body and my life and my resources. They're mine, and no one can tell me what to do. So then your autonomy, your freedom, your independence even from God and from the law of God is the real God in your mind. Maybe you're doing something in service of money. And you're like, I'm sacrificing my integrity, but there's this promotion attached to this or this opportunity attached to this. Maybe you're doing it in service of flexibility and control. And you're like, this, this thing hinders a flexible, comfortable 
future for me. If I do this thing or keep this thing in my life, then there's going to be all kinds of other sacrifices. So I'm going to go ahead and sacrifice it now so that I have control, so that I have freedom and flexibility with the rest of my life. Then flexibility and control and comfort are your real gods. Maybe you're sacrificing something for popularity or for acceptance or for validation. I see a ton of this going on right now. Like, and that's part of why like, just one of our core values, who we will always be, is like, the scripture, the, the holy word of God is what sets the parameters of our lives and our thinking and even orders our loves. Because if not, we could all be all over the place all the time of like, how, how do I... Should I, should I be popular with this group or popular with this group? And like, I hate them, but I side with this group. And so often Christians are sacrificing one thing after another, after another, after another, because they want acceptance. They, they just want people to like them. Just think like, you're, you're chill. You're not like those other Christians I met. You're cool. What did you have to sacrifice to get that moniker from those people? Was it worth it? Have you made acceptance of your peers an idol. I'm um, just one more. I, so often do we not make all kinds of incredibly costly sacrifices just for momentary instant gratification. Like throw away a marriage. Throw away what all your friends think of you because you had to have that gratification in that moment, in that way, and you sacrifice tremendous things for that. And we could go on and on, but I want you to like, genuinely press into this diagnostic, even as we go to communion in a few moments of like, God, what am I, what kind of sacrifices am I willing to make and in service of what? And in contrast, what the call of David is, what the call of God is, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. You know, in his day, the right sacrifices 3,000 years ago were, were prescribed in the law of Moses and it just very much simplify that. You sacrifice something innocent and something spotless, something costly. And what that showed the Jews day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, generation after generation is like your sin leads to death. Your sin is costly and something innocent is going to have to die eventually to atone for your sin. You can atone for your own sin. Okay. That was the sacrifice back then. We know we're not doing that now. We don't go to the temple. We don't bring lambs and turtle doves and stuff. Um, so what's the right sacrifice today? And in the language of the New Testament, you can look at like Romans 12, for example. The right sacrifice today that Christians are called to make is present your life. He's like, present your whole self as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So the right sacrifice now is not like, where do I find a lamb? Where do I lay down this other thing? But it's like, God, here's, here's my entire life. I'm not carving out little spaces that I want to keep for myself. I'm saying, here, here, here's all of me. It's my heart. It's my mind, my thoughts, my emotions. It's my body, God. It, it, it ultimately belongs to you, and I'm yielding it for your service. And that's the right sacrifice to say, God, you are worthy. I trust you. Take all of me. I surrender it all. And then what's the conclusion? Because I said that kind of the theme here is that the good life is a byproduct of seeking God's face. 
So what's the conclusion? He says, well, because God is real and true in contrast to the vanity and the emptiness and the delusion of idols. He says, because God actually hears you when you call on him in faith, because God longs to be gracious to you, because God is in control. Because God looks on the humble with the light of his countenance, with the light of his face. He's like, first of all, I get relief. And just as that, just as that word distress indicates a narrow, a tight spot that's closing in on you, the word relief is just the opposite. It's a Hebrew word that means, like, you've brought me out into a broad place. You ever do that? I mean, just as something as simple as like, I've just been cramped up in this car on the road trip forever. And you stop for the lunch break and it's just like the Wendy's parking lot, but you're still, it's just like, oh, it's a broad and glorious place on this blacktop like, that God has brought me into. And then like you're back in the car again. Well, it's just like in a real big sense. And we can see different ways that God is doing this with our lives. He's like, I'm, I'm taking you out of that distress and I'm giving you the relief that your heart longs for. You come to the last couple of verses here of this very short psalm, and, and David's actually like, we have more joy, which again, like, it, it means more than happiness, but it doesn't mean less than happiness. He's like, you have more happiness than, and, and the way I would read this in modern context is like, you have more joy in Christ than a great big party with all your friends. All this amazing food and drink, it's there and it brings joy to your heart and there's happiness with friends and people you care about. And he's like, but I have more joy in seeking your face and receiving from you than even that. He says, I have peace. We talked about this last week, so I won't belabor this, but he's like, I've got the peace to lie down and just sleep soundly because I've put my confidence in a God who's, he's working around the clock and he has a good and sovereign and gracious plan for my life and our world, and I can be at peace. We have safety is the last word that he uses here. I have the security of a God that watches over me. In other words, I have the good life. I have relief, I have joy, I have peace, I have safety. Not because I've shoved aside God and figured this out on my own, but because I've shoved aside the idols I've made the right sacrifice. God, here's my life. Bless me how you want, when you want, in the ways that you want. And I trust you to give me the good life. And this is what a good God excels at. Will you trust him?